In the middle of it, well, not in the middle, we're starting into a series. This is part three, Lives That Remind Us About God, Meeting Yourself in the Sacred Text. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Joseph, trusting God when life is unfair. I have uh, 11 verses I want to start with under the first point. Point number one is the choice of Joseph and the resulting family bitterness. So we're starting in Genesis 37, 11 verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. Can't talk to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to them, are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream. He told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your brothers, your mother and your brothers indeed bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. His father kept the saying in mind. There's a lot of factors here that mess up the family situation. It says Joseph loved, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's in verse 3. Jacob, of all people, should have realized the danger of this. If you know a bit of the background, Jacob's mother loved him far more, and the father favored Esau, remember? Jacob was the mom's favorite. Jacob also loved Rachel more than Leah, too, remember? So you had this whole situation in Joseph's background. The second thing that complicates the picture is that God had chosen Joseph for a special role to his people. It's in 37, 5 to 9. I'm not going to read it right now. And that position would clearly place him over all of his brothers and all the other family members. And it's, and it's just never easy to watch the call of God flourish in someone else's life. Envy spreads, even among godly people. The writer of Hebrews talks about this, warns of the dangers of this 
root of bitterness. That's what he calls it. It's in Hebrews 12, 15. To a church, these words have to be given. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. How could you miss the grace of God? Doesn't God extend his grace and his love? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Why many? How does that work? When the writer says bitterness has the tendency to defile many, he means the results of the bitterness growing in our hearts will be far more sinister than we ever would have thought. And here's, here's a couple reasons why generally attitudinal sins, we're looking at bitterness, the brother's bitterness against Joseph, but bitterness in general or envy or hatred or um, anger that smolders on the inside, attitudinal sins that never do get expressed really quickly are the most dangerous kinds of sins because we tend to allow them more time to grow and infect our souls. An outward action, you see it, you recognize it, and even if you don't, other people will see it and remind you about it. But sins that brood inside your own cranium, boy, until a sin is exposed, it takes an incredible amount of honesty and humility it's much more difficult to summons full-hearted, deep repentance for an attitude than an action. It's far easier to repent of an action than just an attitude of heart because those things tend to be underground and they tend to grow and they tend to fester. They have a bondage that outward actions, I'm not denying the sinfulness of outward actions, I'm just saying there's a bondage that comes from attitudinal sins that is far deeper than actions, where you explode, you do something silly or wicked, and you feel guilty about it. I've got to go talk to so-and-so. I should not have said that. You tend to, it's out in the open. Sins like bitterness defile many. That's one reason why they defile many, because they're inward, they're harder to repent of, and the longer they're kept inward, the more they grow, and the bondage gets deeper. The second problem, and the reason it defiles many, is that usually a secret inward sin can deceive us into thinking the consequences can't be all that serious. Because after all, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't act on this. And so it tends to feel less guilty. And we tend to think because the secret is invisible, the consequences will also always remain invisible. And it's not the case, as we'll see in this story about Joseph and his brothers. Bitterness is it's, it's a loaded gun in our hearts. It makes us restless for wickedness. You can see it in 19 to 28. I, I know it's, I'm reading a bit more text, but you, you get the details of the story. 
Genesis 37, 19, they, Joseph's brothers, said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. We'll teach him. But when Reuben, he's the oldest one, when he heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell. We can get money out of this. Kill him, you get nothing. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. They don't mind selling him into slavery as a brother, but let's not hurt him, because well, he's our brother. You got to love the family. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now you see, there was bitterness. Remember I said it defiles many, and because it's a secret sin inside, we tend to think that it won't manifest itself outwardly. Well, now it has. It's grown, it's surfaced. The older brothers probably didn't get out of bed that morning planning to either kill or sell their younger brother. I don't think they started out that way. That's where it went. Bitterness defiles many. Takes you where you don't want to go. Inward sins have that capacity just to sneak up on us. And so there's that bitterness factor in the family situation. Okay, two. Reaping the results of deception. Look at 29 to 35. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. That's the conclusion. 34. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth, on his loins and moored for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. The father, in case you don't know the background, is Jacob, Jacob the father. If you know the story of Jacob, here's the thing. He's been a deceiver all his life, Jacob. 
Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau going to Isaac and Jacob wants Isaac to bless him and Jacob's mom gets the goat hair and puts it on his arm so he'll feel like Esau and they go before blind Isaac? That's Jacob. He's a schemer. And it just seems like you do reap what you sow, don't you? Now here's Jacob and his sons are bringing this coat all stained with goat's blood. And there's poor old Jacob. He's been devoured by an animal. I'm going to be miserable the rest of my days. So just as Jacob had once used a dead goat to deceive his father Isaac, his brothers kill a goat and use the blood to break Jacob's heart. Something in the New Testament, I think, about reaping what you sow. Three. What have I done to deserve this? There's that question. That's the question. I mean, life seems very unfair to poor Joseph. I had forgotten. I knew but had forgotten reading the details. 17 is not very old. 17 years old. Look at the mess he's in. He's done really other than maybe being foolish enough to tell his brothers and father about the dreams that God gave him. He probably didn't have to announce that. But other than that, he, he hasn't done anything really wicked to deserve the kind of treatment he's getting. There seems to be no valid relationship between cause and effect in the whole story. That's what makes faith a challenge sometimes. We know because we've got the text. God is preparing him for a role of authority and power on the throne of Egypt. Joseph doesn't know that. I wanted to do this study because you can't live the Christian life for very long without facing this at one time or another. Why in the world is this going the way it's going? There's nothing good here. Why does my life just feel like it's being tormented? Adversity is always most painful when it's unexplainable. So Joseph spent not just a few days, Joseph spent months, perhaps years, not knowing what God was doing or why. All he could see was one disaster after another. Now, later on, Joseph's going to come to those marvelous concluding words. We sometimes sing about them. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, Genesis 50, 20. But right now, he doesn't have any of that information. Here's the statement I want you to take home from church, okay? God's will is what you would always choose for your life if you only had all the information. God's will is what you would always choose for your life if you only had all the information. The thing is, We don't get all the information. It's called faith, the evidence of things not seen. And so there's Joseph. Joseph's got to, he's got to suck it up. Faith, trust, confidence, whatever word you want to use. There's all sorts of times when faith has to work without answers. It means always giving, always give God the benefit of the doubt. 
And remember that, I just quoted Hebrews 1.11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence, the conviction of things not seen. That's Joseph. We're going to get the big picture in just a few minutes. Four, being the kind of person God can use where you are instead of where you aren't. There's three verses that give us a picture of the kind of person Joseph was, the kind of person God uses. Just want to go over them quickly. First, he was faithful running errands for his father. Not very exciting. 37.14. Jacob says to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him. Off he goes. The first look at this 17-year-old, aren't very impressive. He's not old enough, big enough, strong enough to be out with his brothers. He's at home, and his dad sends him on errands, and he does it. Picture number one of Joseph. Two, he was faithful as he served in Potiphar's house. We're getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's part of his account. 39.4 of Genesis. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, put him in charge of all that he had. Now, it's important to remember, Joseph's not here in Potiphar's house as a choice. It wasn't his idea. This would not have been the first desire of his heart. He will serve well if this is where God has him. He's not with his people. This is not his background, not his choice. And he serves. Three, farther down the road. He's a faithful prisoner, even in jail. That's in 39, 22, and 23. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. You see this story of Joseph over and over again, don't you? Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord made it succeed, but he made it succeed because Joseph was willing to serve faithfully wherever he was. Of course, God will make it succeed. He's working with Joseph's will, not against Joseph's will. Joseph's attitude puts him in the place where God can use him in good circumstances and in bad circumstances. When he was that prisoner in jail, isn't it interesting? He's not in prison because he broke any law. You remember the story? He's in prison because Potiphar's wife set him up, lied about him. He's been framed. That's why he's in prison. What's he do? He becomes keeper of the guard in prison, serves faithfully. Why am I going over this? These details prove Joseph was genuinely the kind of person God could use effectively, with total trust. He served faithfully in smaller areas, and God knew could be entrusted with his ultimate assignment, the people in Egypt. Joseph's future calling is going to be huge, but he serves faithfully. I I suppose we're all alike. We have the tendency to dream of the things we would do for God if only we had great opportunities. 
And most of the things you and I will do for the Lord are pretty average. When I, uh, <laughs> when I pastored in Lanigan, Saskatchewan, I showed someone on staff some pictures, Google Earth of Lanigan, and they laughed. Hurt me a little bit, but. And when I was pastoring there uh, with about 30 people, 35 people on a good Sunday, not that many Sunday night. Lots of times, Rini and I were the only ones. And I got her saved about 15 times on Sunday nights. <laughs> and I used to have a little plaque. My office, it, a little church, and it was, they were all the same. Off to the side, you had a, a little office for the pastor. And when I got there, there, there were no shelves and there was no desk and there was an old door in the basement. And I got a pile of bricks on one side, a pile of bricks on the other side, put the door on the bricks. That was my desk. There was a plaque on the wall and it said, maybe you've heard it, little is much if God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown. You can win it if you go in Jesus' name. I just want to tell you, for almost all of us in this room, there's your life right there, laid out in front of you. It goes by fast enough. Wherever God puts you, you're no use, my dad used to say to me, you're no use to God where you aren't. The only place you can possibly serve God is where you are. That's what we learned from Joseph. That's why I cited those three different accounts that look pretty insignificant, but he does what he has to do, and I took too much time. Five. We're almost done. The amazing work of the hand of God behind the scenes of his life and ours. 17 to 23. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, found them at Dothan, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits, and then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit, here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors that he wore. Seems nothing short of disaster. It's unfair, it's cruel, it's unjust. And the question, you know the question everybody asks, where's your God? You believe in this good God? Look at the mess, look at the world. Where is your God? Well, he's there with Joseph. Well, then why isn't he doing something? He, he is doing something, but he's not doing what we're expecting. See, many years earlier, the Lord promises this land of Canaan to Abraham. But not until they had suffered under the Egyptians for 400 years. That's the way it was going to work. Genesis 15, 13. The Lord said to Abraham, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And then, big picture now, God told Abraham something else. Quote, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. What's that about? It's really interesting. God told Abraham, try and follow this. He would bring his children out of Egypt. He would give them the land of the Amorites, the land the Amorites were currently inhabiting. Now, when God told Abraham this, Abraham was not strong enough to deliver God's people. And the Amorites, the Bible says, were not wicked enough yet to have their land justly taken from them. 400 years would have to pass for all of this. But of course, God's people had to live somewhere until all of this was ready. Do you see it? God had a divine timing issue, working out these massive promises for his people and the land. And Joseph was going to play a key part when they were all in Egypt. God was getting Joseph ready for that. Joseph doesn't know all that. But God knows all that. So God wasn't absent. He was active. And the lesson here, the lesson here is, I have to learn something. Maybe you do too, I don't know. I have to learn never to judge God by isolated events. God always works with the big picture. Always works with the big picture. All things work together for good. The Bible nowhere says everything that happens is good. Don't let anybody tell you that. A lot of bad things happen. God can take all those things together and work them for good. Keep your faith and trust in God, especially when you have that part of you that says, God, why is, why is this happening the way it's happening? He doesn't always tell you, but you can always trust him. 